Welcome to Public Health Out Loud, Public Health for the Public. Hi, I'm Dr. Jim McDonald, Medical Director of the Rhode Island Department of Health. And I'm Dr. Philip Chan. Welcome, everyone. And today we have Dr. Michael Koster, which is great to have Dr. Koster here. We're going to talk about a veritable alphabet of viral infections that affect all of us. We're going to talk about respiratory syncytial virus, which is RSV. We're going to talk about influenza or the good old-fashioned flu. And then we, we got to talk about COVID because it's COVID all the time, all every day around here. So welcome, Dr. Koster. Good to have you here today with us at Public Health Out Loud. Well, thank you both for the invitation. It's my pleasure. Why don't we just start first with just asking, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are, and, you know, for research interests? What do you do? Tell us a little bit about who Dr. Koster is. Yeah, so uh, I'm Mike and my uh, pronoun is he. So if you put them together, I'm Mikey to those who know me well. And uh, I'm the division director for pediatric infectious diseases here at Hasbro Children's Hospital. I also sit on the, the in the Department of Infection Control and Prevention. And my research interests are actually respiratory viruses. Wonderful. And I just want to thank you again, Dr. Koster, so much for joining us. Uh, obviously, we've known each other for a while. So thank you for taking the time today. But let's get started. You know, we've been hearing a little bit about, about RSV. So maybe just open it up, uh, talk to us about RSV, maybe some general respiratory virus in general, how RSV kind of fits in. What is RSV for people that may not have heard about it? Yeah, thanks for the question, Dr. Chan. So <clears throat> when I think of RSV, it's really, I think it's a cold, right? So to most people, they understand it as the common cold. It's just one of the common colds, right? There's also lots of other scientific words we have like rhinovirus, enterovirus, adenovirus. But RSV is a bit special in pediatrics, and I would say also in uh, geriatrics in terms of kids who are at high risk. So when we see kids under the age of two, many of them may just get a cold, and I often describe that as a head cold. However, a lot of them can get a chest cold, and a chest cold in uh, pediatric terms is called bronchiolitis. And this is where kids can have some difficulty breathing. They may have some retractions around their ribs or, you know, head bobbing or nasal flaring. And those are signs of, of, you know, more severe respiratory distress beyond a simple cold. And then we have even our youngest premature babies who can have, if they have underlying heart or lung disease, be at higher risk for needing hospitalization uh, from something like RSV or a common cold. But in short, it's a common cold. Most adults get a head cold, and the very younger kids can often get what I describe to parents as a chest cold. Yeah, so Dr. Costa, when I think of respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV as it's more commonly known, you know, one of the things I'm just curious about is, I mean, this year has been different. Like, and one of the things I've noticed from Rhode Island, and I think it's been seen really across the United States, is RSVs come a lot earlier this year. Like, in other words, we started worrying about it end of August. You know, it's kind of funny, like it used to be one of those things that I was an October illness for us uh, through the year, but it seems like it's come earlier this year. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that. And then I just am curious about, do you get long lasting immunity from RSV? Because a lot of times people get an infection and think, well, all right, I'm done with that. I, I don't know if that happens with RSV so much. Can you talk about those couple things? Thank you, Dr. McDonald. Yeah, I'll start with the last part of your question, which is, do you get lifelong immunity to it? No unfortunately, but typically for the season you do. So the RSV season uh, generally ran from November until about April every single year in New England. Up until last year, when we saw very little RSV, we saw very little respiratory viruses. Um, I won't mention that elephant in the room yet, 
But what we have seen was a uh, this year we saw the southern states start to see RSV earlier, right? So the southern hemisphere sees respiratory viruses before we do up here in the northern hemisphere. And so that was a big signal for us. And so we started following that really closely. In fact, here in the hospital, we follow all different types of viruses on like a it's a essentially a machine that can test 20 different viruses at once, including things like COVID and RSV and flu. And we started to see an uptick in RSV and we thought, huh, that's really odd to see it in the summertime. And I think what we've learned actually about seasonality at this point is everything we thought we knew is kind of up in the air. Uh, I think that relates to you know influenza and other things as we've had this uh, COVID season in terms of what's happened with other viruses. So the traditional seasonality of RSV is winter months. And for some reason we saw it early in the summer, no one knows. We're also not sure, is it only gonna last five months like it typically does, or is it gonna last all the way through April? I think those are great questions we don't really have answers to yet. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Koster. And as you're talking, and uh, per Dr. McDonald's point too, uh, I'm reminded that a lot of these respiratory viruses can cause severe illness in people. And I think one thing that's been most concerning about COVID, of course, is that we're seeing more severe illness more often in people, which is why it's more of a concern. But uh, talk to us a little bit about the severity of RSV and why, why it's a big deal. Why don't you tell us what you see in the hospitals during a typical, quote, RSV season, during a, a winter season. How much of a problem is RSV actually or not? Thanks, Dr. Chan. Yeah, obviously you may have the adult side of that a little bit better than I do. I have the pediatric side, but I can tell you RSV can be a problem in nursing homes as well as in uh, elderly, and it can be a severe respiratory infection for them. My uh, best experience I have is with kids who are hospitalized, and I spent a good majority of my career as a hospitalist, and that would mean in the average winter months of our 80-bed hospital, 50 of those kids would have bronchiolitis or that chest cold. And a vast majority of those had RSV. What we really worry about is the really younger children. So children who are born premature, so under, under, 29, you know, under 29 weeks of gestation, or children that are born under 34 weeks of gestation, so very premature babies who have either heart or lung problems, needing oxygen or having uh, something uh, born with a different uh, type of heart that uh, pumps differently, then they often will need something we call prevention. And we give those kids a medicine called palavizumab, which is a fancy word for things people have heard about called monoclonal antibodies, which I know people are learning a lot more about these days. And it's basically giving your body the protection of antibodies so that you don't so for instance, that's kind of how vaccines work, right? They give us antibodies and then those antibodies protect us against illness. So a monoclonal antibody is giving you that protection without needing to wait for the vaccine to work or wait for your body's reaction to it. And we call that passive immunization. And so we do our best to try to protect these kids. And I'd actually give a big shout out to folks at the Department of Health because they, collaborating with women and infants, Hasbro Children's Hospital, as well as Department of Health, we noticed this uptick in RSV, and we actually initiated early receipt of palavizumab or that monoclonal antibody to kids this year. So they are already getting it and getting protected to prevent them from being hospitalized. On your question about what does it look like? Well, listen, I don't know how many of you have kids out there, but if you've ever seen a snot-nosed kid, <laughs> that's what RSV is. 
And there's all sorts of really cool things parents can do at home to try to get that snot out, which is uh, something called, you know, if we use these things called little suckers and it's this little trap with a filter on it and you put it on the kid's nose and you can suck out those boogers uh, with a filter and a trap, or you can use a good old fashioned bulb syringe and try to clear that out. Even though the problem is in the lungs, <clears throat> you want to, excuse me, you want to make sure that the kid's nasal passage is clear, right? So that uh, it, between the nose and the lungs that they don't have a problem. And so majority of the time outside of the hospital is spent just trying to keep the boogers clear and keep kids breathing, right? Especially for the younger kids, because when they're eating and drinking, they're breathing through their nose. So a typical hospitalized patient can get very sick if they have those severe risk factors like prematurity, um, less than three months of age. And what happens for those kids is they often may need help uh, supporting their breathing. So they come in, as I said, with mm -hmm. those retractions, breathing fast. We use a device called high flow nasal cannula, which is basically a lot of people know what that little oxygen cannula looks like in your nose. But this one's warmed and humidified. So it's, you know, it's a little more gentle from that perspective. The difference is we crank the flow up really high. So it's called high flow. And it helps keeps it helps the kids keep their lungs open and helps them actually just not have to work so hard uh, every time they breathe in. And it's very rare for kids to need to be intubated or on a ventilator. But that does happen for some of our highest risk kids. Mm -hmm. I will say, Dr. Coster, on the adult side, uh, thank you for all that. Uh, on the adult side, we see it occasionally. We see it more in immunocompromised. I think the elderly, as you mentioned. So it's definitely a, a player, if you will, in, in hospitalized patients. Uh, we tend not to see it that frequently. And it tends not to cause uh, that severe disease in, in the majority of adults, uh, even older adults. And I think, to your point, it has to do with adults, right, having a little bit bigger airways. And in kids, it's much smaller airways, and they can get clogged up uh, much more easily. But a uh, question for Dr. McDonald, actually, uh, being an outpatient uh, pediatrician that you are, uh, tell, us, uh, tell us what you do in the outpatient setting for this. Do you, do you suction snot? What do you, what do, you do when, when kids come in? Yeah, so it, it's a great really point. Like, and this is one of those times as a pediatrician, a lot of times what you do is just see really what is the problem and, and what can I do to actually manage it. But there really aren't a lot of good medicines to treat respiratory syndrome virus that I have available to me. So when I see someone in the clinic, what I'm trying to establish is one, can the baby drink on their own? Because if a baby can drink on their own, they're usually breathing pretty well. So that's kind of the main thing. If I check their pulse oximetry, make sure they get enough oxygen to their tissues. But if a baby's drinking well and their pulse ox is good, a lot of times I'm sending that baby home without any medicine because I really don't have a great drug to treat it. You know, I've been around this for 31 years and I've seen a lot of things come and go with treatment of RSV, but they've all pretty much gone. Very little has stayed. Um, there really isn't a good treatment. Sometimes you'll try giving someone a nebulized treatment with albuterol. That used to be done a lot more common than it is now. But it just, for the vast majority of kids with RSV, it doesn't help. And really, it's a matter of just saying, well, what do we do right now? And really, the main thing I do in, in the clinic setting is telling parents what to look for to see if their child needs to come back to the emergency department or end up in a hospital. And those are signs like what I actually say to people, if your baby's not drinking well, your baby might not be breathing well, and that's time when I really want to see your baby. Obviously, if your baby's breathing fast, that's another time where I'm worried. Um, and it, you know, it's one of those things Dr. Koster talked a lot about this earlier. If you see the baby's muscles sucking into the baby's chest, those lung, those chest muscles, that's a worrisome sign as well. But Dr. Koster, it brings me to another point. You know, you're 
very aware that we in the Rhode Island live the COVID pandemic every day, all day long. It's amazing how the pandemic does not take a day off. And, and part of one of the things I'm just curious about is like, what's more contagious, by the way, is COVID more contagious, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, or is RSV more contagious? You know, and, and we haven't even gotten a flu season yet, but, you know, I got rumor to believe that's coming too. But like, give me an idea though, when you think about SARS-CoV-2, what's more contagious? Is it SARS-CoV-2 or COVID? Give me your thoughts or, or, or RSV. What are your thoughts on that? Really great question and, and such great sage advice for parents at home too. I might add one more thing to the RSV mix of the idea that there are no great medicines, right? And so one thing I often do is nasal saline in the nose. It's actually breaks up the mucus, you know, it's a, a mucolytic in a lot of ways and helps move, just keep the nasal passageway open. And I think um, even for the listeners out there, you know, uh, when you have COVID or any kind of virus, using nasal saline is actually a great way to kind of keep your nose uh, open. So in, in response to your question, yeah, this is a really great opportunity for a little story as it relates to research. So there was a great study done, you know, probably about 40 years ago now, where a smart researcher took medical students and they took the medical students and divided them into three groups. One, and, and they put them, uh, they were exposed them to RSV, babies with RSV. So one group of medical students goes into the room. They're not allowed to do anything. They just sit there in the corner and read a book. So call those sitters. The second group of patients go in and they touch the IV pole and touch the baby's crib and, you know, touch different things. And so we call them the touchers. And then there was a third group, which were the cuddlers. So they'd go into the room and kind of hold the baby, you know, cute little baby, you know, snotty nose, but still cute, right? And we looked at what were the attack rates for RSV for those different groups. And from this, we're able to determine that actually, if you just go in the room and sit there, you're not, you're, you can't get RSV that way. If you start touching things, then ultimately you may end up touching your face or your eyes or your nose. You get COVID, but sorry, you get RSV, but at a, a lower rate. If you were a cuddler, if you got close to that baby and you were doing all those fun, cutesy little things with the baby, your rate of the, the transmission rate for you was much higher. So we learned a lot from that study. We can't do that to medical students anymore. But what we learned from that study was that it's not, it's not transmitted through the air. It's not aerosolized, right? So if you think about, um, if you think about, for instance, is it more contagious in a family? Well, probably pretty close to equal when you're all in the household and touching things and, you know, cuddling with each other, right? If you are talking about on a community perspective, you know, COVID is now, as we know, an aerosolized infection. So I would say that's definitely vastly more contagious at this point than RSV. And at the same time, you have to look at people's immunity, right? So uh, as we bring vaccines on board, as we get people, uh, people will recover from COVID, then it can't sweep through uh, populations because there's some immunity and protection. So certainly uh, in the beginning, COVID was definitely more contagious. And then of course the Delta variant brought this aerosolized COVID and the entire, you know, all the people still who haven't had COVID or been vaccinated are still at risk. Yeah, Dr. Koster, let me follow up on that for a second here, because uh, of course we've been hearing so much uh, in the media and in the, in the scientific literature about how bad the Delta variant is. Talk to us for a second about uh, just some general updates and what you've seen with COVID in kids. So I know that we had chatted 
uh, during during the summer, early summer 2021 here. You'd mentioned that there's you know, no kids in the hospital. And as we know, one of the themes of this pandemic has been that COVID in general uh, affects kids less. Tell us what you've seen and what your experiences have been in the hospital as the Delta variant did take hold, you know, late summer till now. What have you seen different about the Delta variant? What have been your experiences in the hospital as the Delta variant uh, has, has penetrated the community here? Well, I'll tell you one of the most startling things, not that we've seen, but that we haven't seen, is that we haven't seen the multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children after Delta. I think that is just bizarre. We're still seeing it, but we certainly are not seeing it at the same rate in the same level that we saw after the ancestral strain or the alpha uh, variant came through. What we, what we are seeing in kids is children with high risk factors. So St. Jude's did a great study looking at kids, for instance, who have cancer, who had stem cell transplants. And those kids had much higher rates of COVID uh, hospitalizations and much, unfortunately, higher rates of death from COVID. And they looked at you know, 20 different countries across the globe. So I think we understand that certain children have higher risk factors. And it's, it's a no brainer to understand that kids with cancer have a higher risk of having a severe outcome from COVID. In terms of the average, you know, typical children, we definitely still see very low hospitalization rates, somewhere under 1%. And we see in, you know, a very tiny fraction of kids who unfortunately have succumbed to COVID. And that number is probably getting close to about 600 total in our country, uh, or about 0.01% of all documented cases. And again, Rhode Island's doing a great job of testing those in the K through 12. We have uh, great uh, access to testing. We had one of the highest rates, actually, of COVID in children uh, per capita or per population prior to Delta. And then when Delta swept through the South, Tennessee, Florida, and others overtook us in terms of the rate. And so in terms of the total number of kids with COVID that we've seen, it's pretty high in Rhode Island. We still, you know, I took care of one patient with COVID last week who honestly barely met hospital level criteria. But earlier this month in September, I took care of two children who had, you know, significant obesity and uh, adolescents who had severe COVID, both severe COVID pneumonia and the other with severe COVID pneumonia and pulmonary emboli. And so we do see kids get really, really sick from COVID. Luckily, that's a very, very small number. You know, Dr. Koster, I, I want to just pick up on that COVID issue one more time. Monoclonal antibodies, have you used them for kids with COVID? And, and how, if you have any anecdotal experience about how will they work with, with kids for monoclonal antibodies? So we are using monoclonal antibodies for kids 12 and older. Um, as you know, the Rhode Island Department of Health has a great website that shows what all the infusion sites are. There's an at-home ambulance service that's providing uh, care in monoclonal to families, including kids 12 and older. There is Thunder Mist, as well as Hasbro Children's Hospital, providing monoclonal antibodies to those 12 and older with risk factors. So you have to have a risk factor. And those risk factors are the same that have always been there for monoclonal authorization. Uh, you know, for kids, it's really being overweight, um, heart, lung disease, uh, things like asthma, neurological diseases or genetic conditions that put you at high risk. So all of those uh, uh, high-risk conditions, kids 12 and older can receive monoclonal antibody. 
they generally have to have symptoms and or have their test within seven days. The sooner, the better. Uh, but there's lots of different ways for kids to get that. Here at Hasbro, we have uh, one of the only sites in the region. In fact, um, you know, we have patients coming from Indiana, North Carolina, New York to receive monoclonal antibody in our clinical trial. Our clinical trial is for kids zero to 11, again, with the same risk factors who uh, have to enroll actually within 72 hours of a positive test. So that can be a real challenge when that PCR doesn't come back uh, quickly, but within 72 hours and um, those and the experience infusing all of these children, probably close to about a dozen in our uh, clinical trial, as well as close to two, three dozen, uh, 12 and older, and of course, thousands of adults in Rhode Island. And it is very safe and it's very effective. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Koster. I know that we're, uh, we're, our time is winding down a bit here. We've talked about RSV and of course, COVID. Uh, what else should people know about respiratory viruses in general, uh, especially for the families, the parents uh, out there? Any other advice that you want to share? Well, this is advice from my grandma, Dr. Chan. Wash your hands, right? So I think there's no better advice out there than making sure you wash your hands. Look, not everybody's wearing masks these days, but you know what? You still got to practice etiquette. If you cough, cough into your elbow. If you cough and sneeze, wash your hands. And I think that's probably one hands down, ha ha ha, the most important advice I've ever been given to prevent infections. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. Uh, and I think our final question for you here, let's end on a high note. Uh, what does the future of pediatric infectious disease, virology, respiratory uh, illness, what does that hold? Where do we go from here? Where's COVID going, by the way? Yeah, Dr. Chan, such an amazing question. You know, when I'm asked this question, I can't help but say the COVID vaccine has been number one, a game changer. We never thought it would be this effective. Now with four over 4 billion people receiving it, we never thought it would be this safe. So safe and super effective. And it's been, a, it's a game changer in terms of vaccine technology. Uh, will we have universal flu vaccine? Will we have a better way of, um, you know, getting protection against other viruses through um, both mRNA technology in terms of the vaccine? But I think we will look back upon this as COVID vaccine being the most important medical discovery of our generation and the next. I agree with you. And I think uh, to your point, we have all the answers to end this pandemic and uh, are working tirelessly. Thank you for all of your help. Uh, certainly on the pediatric side, infectious diseases, we certainly don't underestimate all your incredible work, you and your colleagues uh, at the hospital uh, here in Rhode Island. So thank you, Dr. Koster, for joining us today. Thank you to co-host Dr. Jim McDonald. And in closing, I do want to leave everyone with a moment of Zen to consider throughout the rest of your day. And here it is. This is from the great John F. Kennedy. Those who dare to fail miserably can achieve greatly. So thank you all very much. Have a good rest of the day. I want to thank Dr. Michael Koster, our guest today. I also want to thank Stephanie Menders, our executive producer, Carol Stone, our technical director. I'm Dr. Jim McDonald. Have a good, keep up the great.